Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Global Business Alliance's December Trade Policy Podcast. My name is Dan Neff, and today we are joined by Brian Pomper from Hake Gum. Thanks for being here, Brian. Thanks for having me, Dan. So as 2021 comes to a close, we're going to cover a few outstanding things in the trade space before Brian gives us some great insight into what to expect for 2022. So first, we'll start in China. Section 301 comments were due recently, and many companies made a bid to have more exclusions on products manufactured in China. Some admitted that the tariffs prompted them to shift their supply chains out of China, finding places like Taiwan. However, others have stated that going through other countries was too costly, time-consuming, or maybe not even possible. And, you know, this is something we've discussed in the past where companies have been making the reshoring effort but are still finding difficulties. So I'm wondering, Brian, you know, what's your outlook on this issue and do you have any thoughts on the written comments? Sure. So this is a very complicated topic we could probably spend the entire time discussing, but I will try to be succinct. So first, let me talk about the exclusion process that uh, was opened up. Uh, It was very narrow. So the only products that were capable of uh, being commented on, really the only products that USTR opened up, were those that had been granted exclusions that had subsequently been extended. That was a total of, I think, 549, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly. So a very small, I think maybe I've heard statistics, 1% of all products that are impacted by these tariffs. I think USTR suffered some criticism by how narrow that process was and also some head scratching because effectively it allowed the Trump administration to define the scope of relief for a Biden administration that clearly has different priorities. And one very good example I can point out is the Trump administration did not have anywhere close to the same kind of climate change agenda that the Biden administration has. So one can imagine there are likely to be quite a few products on the full broad lists where the Biden administration may have granted approval because it would be a product that could be used in the context of fighting climate change, whereas for the Trump administration, that was not a priority. So it felt strange to narrow, have such a narrow exclusion process at the time. And as a result, uh, I think USTR heard that criticism and either publicly or or privately, but in any event, made it be known that if companies wanted to comment beyond the scope of just the very products that were on that list, they were welcome to do so. And so uh, we had many clients, and I know others did as well, who submitted comments beyond just the products where the, the comment period was open to just make the point, we really think you need a broader exclusion process. And you, you, you need really to look at these tariffs uh, to rationalize them so that they are crafted to maximize the leverage they give you against China while minimizing the harm to U.S. manufacturers. I think that's really the mantra many people used. I think USTR hears that and understands that. I, I believe USTR will be doing something like that in 2022. So I'm looking ahead a little bit to 2022. Uh, I think they are going to do that of their own accord. I think USTR will, will rationalize them. And there are a bunch of reasons why they why they might want to do that. First, I, I just think it's the right policy, right? Because you have these tariffs that were imposed by the Trump administration fairly indiscriminately on, on a wide array of, of products. Uh, so it would make sense for this administration to say, boy, we need to we need to rationalize them. We need to take a hard look 
And like I've said, maximize the leverage on China, minimize the harm on U.S. companies. Uh, so there's been some thought that USTR might issue a new 301 on industrial subsidies from China. And my gosh, you know, that's basically the Chinese economy, industrial subsidies. That's pretty broad. But I think in some respects, if USTR does choose to go this route, it's broad by design. It really gives USTR the maximum flexibility to redesign a tariff program exactly as we've discussed. That may be attractive to USTR because the current lists three and four are the subject of litigation, which uh, I think many people know, and actually Aiken Gump is leading the, the litigation on this. So I, I guess there's no, been no decision in those cases, but at a minimum, they are legally suspect. And I think USTR doesn't want to be put in a position where lists one and two remain in place because those are not being challenged. There's, it's a total of $50 billion in trade. But then you've got lists three and four A that are currently being tariffed. I think that's something, a total of something along 350 billion additional uh, dollars, something along uh, along that neighborhood that's being tariffed, that's susceptible to being canceled by an adverse court decision. I don't think USTR wants to be left in a position where those tariffs get canceled apart from them being able to do it themselves. And a new 301 that would allow them to design a new system on a legally sound footing, I think, is an attractive option for USTR. I don't know if they're going to do that, but it's definitely something that's that has been discussed. Of course, that that would they'd have to launch it. It would take some time. So we'll see sort of where that plays out. The other way or the other reason USTR, I, I believe, is thinking about doing this kind of rationalizing of the 301 tariffs is the, the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act that's being considered by the Congress right now. So famously, ranking member, Senate Finance Committee ranking member Crapo had a trade amendment, which really, I believe, he had negotiated largely with Senator Wyden when it was thought that uh, there would be a robust trade piece of the USICA. I think Senator Schumer didn't really want to include the trade amendment. What ended up happening was uh, Senator Crapo was able, he offered that, that trade title as an amendment, and he was able to marshal the Republican conference to block consideration, further consideration of the USICA, unless he got a vote on his amendment. Senator Schumer allowed a vote, agreed to that, and it passed 91 to 4. I mean, an overwhelming uh, support for that bill. So that was the first time Senator Crapo showed the ability to marshal the Republicans behind him and this trade title. And the most important pieces we're discussing here, relevant to this conversation, I should say, are the parts of that bill related to the 301 tariffs. It has other bells and whistles on other parts of the trade agenda, but center to the 301, it, it requires all previous exclusions to be reinstated. It requires refunds of all tariffs paid on those products that have been tariffed under Section 301 since the start of 2021, the beginning of this year. And it mandates that USTR introduce a new broad-based exclusion process. That passed 91 to 4, strong, I'd say overwhelming bipartisan support. So now you look at the House. The House is less enthused about having that kind of measure. There's very little interest as far as I can see so far 
among the, the majority Democrats to including anything on Section 301 that could be seen as forcing Ambassador Tai's hand. But I, let, let me say this. So I, I mentioned Senator Crapo was able that first time to marshal Republicans. Then when a few weeks ago, Leader Schumer sought to include the USICA onto the, the NDAA, right, the National Defense Authorization Act. Keep in mind, I mean, this USICA is a real achievement for Schumer. It was on the floor in the Senate for three weeks. This was a major bill to get through and a high priority for him. He wants it to pass. And so he thought he would add it to this must-pass vehicle, the, the NDAA. But he, he wanted to carve out the trade title. He didn't want to include that on the NDAA. Senator Crapo, once again, was able to, uh, along with, I mean, there were other issues as well, but he was able to uh, make the point, look, you can't, you can't carve out my trade title. I need that in the final package. And the Republicans went along with him. And at the end of the day, Leader Schumer was forced not to include USICA in the NDAA. And that led to the, the joint statement that Leader Schumer and Speaker Pelosi gave saying, well, we will conference on USICA. I, I want I point that out in excruciating detail because twice Senator Crapo has shown uh, the willingness and ability to hold things up unless he gets his amendment. So I think when you've got this USICA that now Speaker Pelosi has embraced, and I understand she believes very strongly in certain parts of it. I know there are differences between the House and the Senate, but, and there are other issues in the bill. So there's there's a lot of work to be done there. Whereas House Democrats say, well, we don't think that they don't want to do anything on Section 301. I just don't think that there will be a USICA without Senator Crapo getting some parts of what he wants through negotiation. So I, I think USTR sees that too. I think they understand the politics in a similar way and perhaps want to get out ahead of it by having their own process. And candidly, for a policy perspective, that's probably the best outcome because Section 301 is supposed to be a really flexible program that allows the administration to use its own judgment in terms of how best to maximize leverage against intransigent foreign trading partners. And it, it feels like legislating an outcome is, is one that is probably not ideal from a policy perspective. I'd say one additional thing on that, and I'd probably add this to the 232 piece, too. The one exception I might say to that is with respect to the exceptions process. It probably is not a bad idea to have a legislative guideline or guardrails around what the exclusion process should look like, not just for Section 301, but probably for Section 232 as well. This whole exclusion process doesn't appear really anywhere in either of those statutes, uh, but it's become a major feature of how the administration is implementing those statutes. And it feels to me like it would make sense for Congress, which after all passed both Section 301 and Section 232, to add some sort of exclusion process and statute to both of those, those, uh, those measures so that we have some kind of rationalization and these agencies have some guidance so that you get away from some of the problems that you've had on transparency and due process where Various reports have criticized both Section 232 and Section 301, how they've been implemented by the Trump administration previously. And we'll, we'll see how this new exclusion process goes in, in, at USDR. But I do think it would be helpful to have Congress weigh in on exclusion processes specifically. That was a lot. So I apologize. 
No, that is okay. It's a lot of great information, and I really appreciate it, Brian. And I'm glad that you brought up USICA uh, because that conferencing and negotiating piece sounds like it's going to maybe take a lot longer than expected. Do you think that's going to bleed deep into 2022? I don't think it's going to bleed deep into 2022. I, I think there is a lot of work to be done there, but it could happen relatively quick. I think there are quite a few people that would like it to happen in January. And I don't think that that's outside the realm of the possible. I will say having the Build Back Better bill bleed even to January may soak up some of that oxygen. So maybe it gets pushed a little bit further, but I actually think of the USICA as being more of a Q1 enterprise than, than anything else. I think that's certainly the design of um, the leaders in Congress is to really try to get this done. Gotcha. Thank you for that. So let's move over to the EU. Speaking of Section 232, uh, you know, USTR ties recently said that trade between the EU and US is, quote, closer and better aligned than ever before, unquote. So do you think that this is a fair assessment, Brian? You know, just this week, Secretary Armando criticized the EU's new digital services legislation that they've introduced. But we've also seen some compromises, you know, between the two blocks, you know, in Section 232 and the Boeing Airbus bus dispute earlier this year. Um, so do you agree with USTR's assessment? Because it feels a bit complicated. I, I mean, I don't know if it's the best it's ever been, but it is certainly uh, better than it has been in the last uh, at least half dozen years or so. The relationship on the trade side certainly had deteriorated. And as you said, Ambassador Tai has managed to clean out some of the underbrush. So we've, we've now got this, I guess, tentative settlement on, on Boeing Airbus. We, we've got the a deal on the Section 232 steel and aluminum. With individual countries, you've got the deal on digital services taxes. You're now uh, you, you've got the reinfiguration of the tripart negotiations with Japan and the EU on uh, subsidies and, and other things. Uh, it, it feels like there's a lot of good that's happened in the US-EU relationship, and I think that is entirely by design. Great. Thank you for that. And so uh, moving on to Canada, a big piece that we've been following is Canada recently sent a letter to congressional leadership stating that they will retaliate if the Build Back Better EV tax credit passes. How do you see that playing out, you know, and how do you think that the Biden administration is going to try and balance respecting its allies, but also getting this big policy goal of theirs across the finish line? Yeah, well, not just uh, Canada, but Mexico as well have, have both been, and I think the EU too. I mean, all of these countries have been very aggressive pushing back on this provision, which gives uh, an increased tax incentive for electric vehicles that are manufactured using union labor. There are, I haven't done any kind of legal analysis. There are those I, who I respect who say that it is clearly violative of our uh, obligations, both under USMCA and the World Trade Organization. Uh, of course, USMCA is the relevant piece because the dispute settlement uh, program or dispute settlement mechanism in, in WTO is, is currently not really operational. So um, I, I think, how do I think that's going to play out? I don't think those provisions are going to be in the ultimate package. Uh, they are included in the Build Back Better bill. So if that ends up not passing, and of course, there's no problem. Uh, but if it does end up passing, I, I still don't think that's likely to be included. And I say that because you have quite a few automakers, foreign automakers, because I gather it is only the, the domestic you know, big three automakers that have union labor who would qualify for this. But you have quite a bit of employment in the United States from foreign automakers. 
including in important states like West Virginia. So if I'm a betting person, I think this is one of the things that Senator Manchin will, will insist be on the chopping block for any deal that he will ultimately agree to in Build Back Better. And as we all know, uh, it's, it's really Senator Manchin who holds quite a few cards here on Build Back Better. So it's a long way of saying, Dan, ultimately, I don't think we're going to come to any kind of trade blows over this because I don't think we're going to end up passing it. Interesting. Thank you. And so quickly, I want to touch on the environmental space just for a second. Brian Deese, who's the director of the National Economic Council, recently said that the U.S. already has mechanisms in place that have affected the price of carbon and that he hopes that the U.S. can get to a place where emissions intensive activities are very costly. And to me, that kind of maybe hints that he doesn't think congressional action will be needed. Do you think that'd be a favorable outcome for companies? Do you read it that way? Well, I think what he's talking about is an important part of the Biden administration's climate agenda, right? That's we discussed that earlier, which this it really is a primary focus of this administration is climate change. I mean, there have even been so far as to be rumors that Secretary Kerry has been trying to slow walk the uh, Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act out of a concern that it would interfere with his ability to cooperate with China on climate change measures. So just to give you a sense about what a priority some people in the administration place on, on these climate change issues. Again, that's a rumor. I, I'm, I'm not making any accusations, but just the sheer fact that there could be such a rumor tells you just how important this is. So uh, I think that they will continue to look for ways to include climate change in their policies across government, including in trade policy. There was that bill that um, Senator Coons in the Senate and uh, Congressman Peters in the House had trying to impose a carbon border tax. Uh, I, I think that was criticized um, as really not being fully baked, and that's probably right. I think from a trade perspective, the cleanest and easiest way to have a border tax is to have a carbon price. And we don't have that in the United States. I don't know if we'll ultimately get there. Uh, this is one area I'm still learning about myself, candidly. It's, it's a pretty interesting area. Uh, you know, will the United States ever adopt a carbon tax? That seems politically unlikely, at least at this juncture, but maybe at some point in the future. It's hard to argue that from, I think, from an economic efficiency standpoint, that's probably the easiest way to, to put a price on carbon rather than some of these more uh, regulatory approaches. But uh, if you're asking me how do companies feel about that, I think that's probably going to be a company specific thing and no company wants to pay more taxes, right? But I think it just depends in the end how it all ends up working out. If you've got, you know, some companies who are having to pay these taxes because they're cited in countries or more, uh, have a lot more operations in countries where there is a border tax, as opposed to others who don't have to pay that porter tax because they're in countries that don't. I think that it gets to be pretty complicated pretty quickly. Yeah, I agree. And uh, like you said, you know, it's a growing thing that the administration will only keep pursuing. So I find it fascinating and I appreciate your perspective. So now that we're uh, closing the uh, chapter on 2021, the the fun experiment of the crystal ball for 2022, you know, uh, Brian, I'm wondering, what would you say is the biggest things companies should be tracking in the trade space heading into 2022? Are there any new trade initiatives to look out for? What are you thinking about? Yeah, uh, an excellent question. I, I think absolutely the thing on the horizon that's bigger than anything else is this USICA. 
I think it will be a bit of a Christmas tree uh, more broadly, but also for trade. So you have, obviously, we talked about the Section 301 pieces. It also includes the miscellaneous tariff bill. It uh, includes a reauthorization of the generalized systems of preferences. Both those things still need to be negotiated out. I think there are differences on both of those between the House and the Senate. Uh, there are other measures that are uh, uh, included, but also being sought to be included. Just the other day, uh, many folks may have seen that Senator Casey said that he and Senator Cornyn would like to include their outbound investment screen idea in the USICA. I understand the House Democrats have talked about putting a level the playing field act 2.0, which I believe is uh, been introduced by Ms. Sewell in the House, introduced by Senators Brown and Portman in the Senate. And the House Democrats are interested in including that in a USICA package. Um, and I, I'm sure there will be other ideals, other ideas. So that that I think is the thing that folks should really watch because there's a lot in there already and there's likely to be more either that people would want to be included or will try hard not to have included. So I would say, look at that. I just note this idea about this uh, Indo-Pacific discussion. I don't know exactly what, you're, what, what, what it's being called. That's something that we'll see if it gets fleshed out further uh, next year. It's obviously a very important thing for the administration. I, anecdotally, I've heard some of the countries, Japan in particular, were a little peeved by the idea because they thought, well, gosh, you know, we do have this whole TPP thing and you pulled out of it. And now you want to set up some sort of competing alternative talk shop. You know, how does this fit with APEC? What does this look like? It looks like an alternative APEC. But nevertheless, I think it's a positive that the administration is seeking to engage more in that region. Uh, I think it's hard to argue with that. And we'll just have to see what concrete steps uh, are taken there and what that looks like uh, really when it's stood up. I will say the administration this year has set up a variety of these kinds of forward-looking talk shops, right? You've got the Mexican high-level economic dialogue. You've got the USEU Trade and Tech Council. Uh, I mean, these are things where they are, they're all about cooperating going forward. I am confident without ever having been told so a large degree of the reason why those things are being set up the way they are is to cooperate on China. Now, that's a very good and a positive thing. I will say, though, it, does, it, it leaves out the obligations that countries have made to us under existing agreements. So I think there are many companies in the United States who wouldn't want the Mexican high-level economic dialogue to mean we're only going to talk about things that we agree on with Mexico. Or, or with the EU and the, the Trade and Tech Council. I think in those fora, uh, the administration has been clear that they don't want to talk about disputes. Uh, and I do think the administration has been pretty good, especially with Mexico, about some of the concerns companies have had on USMCA, say on like ag biotech. The administration has been very good about pressing their Mexican counterparts on that. But I, I, I think so seeing how these forward-looking structures with the EU, with Mexico, this new one with Indo-Pacific, I think watching to see how those things develop and how companies can engage in those, I think would be something important to watch. I don't think there are any new trade initiatives that are in the offing, no new bilateral trade agreements. I don't think TPA, Trade Promotion Authority, is going to be renewed anytime soon. Uh, I do think we may get more 232 
deals. Japan, of course, has been hot and heavy negotiating with the United States, try to get out from underneath those. I think those, I heard those talks may have taken a, gone a little bit sideways with the Japanese. So I don't know if they, they're, they're going to continue or if that's all going to work out. I know the UK is desperate to get a deal as well. And there are other countries that have been mentioned like Norway and others. Um, each one of those though comes with its own political issues. I think that the unions in particular aren't really crazy to see a whole string of these things. So I think it has to be carefully choreographed and the administration is going to have to work really closely with its stakeholder groups to, to make sure that they're they're able to sustain what it is that they're doing. But I, I, I would expect there to be maybe a, a handful more deals on Section 232 in the in the coming year. I think those are the things that I can think of off the top of my head. Uh, there, there may be others, but those are the ones that I can, uh, I can come up with. Well, I appreciate it, Brian. And thank you, as always, for your expertise and information on these topics. I hope that you and everyone listening have a safe and warm holiday season. Oh, Dan, I'm sorry, before you end it, I have one more. Okay. <laughs> and then you can wish everybody happy holiday. That okay. is a, a digital trade agreement. It has been, uh, I, I think, substantively would be pretty low-hanging fruit. There's a digital trade chapter, uh, of course, in TPP that we largely discussed, but we also have one in our agreement with Japan. I think uh, that's something that politically has been seen as difficult because some uh, of the activist groups on the left have thought of it as just basically TPP light or the administration doing something for corporations when they should be focused elsewhere, that sort of thing. But I think there's quite a bit of interest on digital trade really across the spectrum uh, on both the Democratic and Republican side. So that's something else that I could see happening uh, in, in the coming year. So I'm sorry, with that, you can wish everybody a happy and healthy holiday season. Oh, I appreciate. Thank you for for cutting me off and and, and getting us there. Um, but I, you know, again, thank you for your expertise and all that you provide for us. And I hope that you and everyone listening have a safe and nice holiday. And we will see you in 2022. Thank you, Dan.